It's Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, it's not all about the asteroid. Some scientists are still debating what caused the dinosaurs to go extinct. And a new study provides some interesting evidence for the role of volcanoes in mass extinction events. Plus, we know concrete isn't great for keeping buildings cool, but just how bad is it? And what other, greener methods did its adoption stamp out that could be revived? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. There are generally thought to have been five mass extinction events throughout the history of our planet. The Ordovician-Silurian, the Late Devonian, the Permian-Triassic, the Triassic-Jurassic, and the Cretaceous-Paleogene, previously known as the Cretaceous-Tertiary, or, more commonly, the extinction of the dinosaurs. To qualify as a mass extinction event, 75% of all the world's existing species must go extinct within 2 to 3 million years. Nevertheless, with so many minor extinction events, the so-called Big Five aforementioned aren't necessarily the only mass extinctions that have ever happened, but more like the biggest that we know of. The Cretaceous-Paleogene was the most recent mass extinction, and due to the non-avian dinosaurs being among the species that went extinct, has also become the most famous, with the most theories swirling around it. And ever since the Chicxulub impact crater was discovered in the Yucatan Peninsula in the early 90s, the predominant theory for that particular extinction was the collision of an asteroid with the Earth, which caused huge amounts of ash to blanket the skies and induce comparatively extreme cold. But other theories for that and other mass extinction events remain, and a new paper published last week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences provides new quantitative evidence that such events could have been caused instead by enormous volcanic eruptions. Quoting Fizz.org, Four of the five mass extinctions are contemporaneous with a type of volcanic outpouring called a flood basalt, the researchers say. These eruptions flood vast areas, even an entire continent, with lava in the blink of a geological eye, a mere million years. They leave behind giant fingerprints as evidence, extensive regions of steppe-like igneous rock, solidified from the erupted lava, that geologists call large igneous provinces. To count as large, a large igneous province must contain at least 100,000 cubic kilometers of magma. For context, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens involved less than one cubic kilometer of magma. The researchers say that most of the volcanoes represented in the study erupted on the order of a million times more lava than that. End quote. Now, one such series of eruptions in present-day Siberia is thought to have triggered the Permian-Triassic extinction 252 million years ago. The eruptions created a huge surge of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that choked off nearly all life. And today, you can see the remains of these eruptions in the Siberian Traps, a region of volcanic rock that's nearly the size of Australia. Quoting the study's press release in Dartmouth, Volcanic eruptions also rocked the Indian subcontinent around the time of the Great Dinosaur Die-Off, creating what is known today as the Deccan Plateau. This, much like an asteroid strike, would have had far-reaching global effects, blanketing the atmosphere in dust and toxic fumes, asphyxiating dinosaurs and other life. 
end quote. In all, four out of five of the mass extinctions coincided with heavy volcanic activity. So the team then sought to test whether there could be a causal relationship between the volcanic eruptions and the mass extinction events. Quoting Discover Magazine, After identifying these enormous eruptions, the team then used supercomputers to analyze their timing with that of past extinctions, including the five mass extinction events. To verify that any correspondence between the timing of the two represented causal connections rather than coincidences, the computers then tested whether the volcanic activities would coordinate with 100 million randomly generated patterns at a similar level. The results revealed that the eruptions and the extinctions matched much more than could be explained by mere chance. Using the same process to analyze the timing of asteroid impacts in comparison to the timing of extinctions, the team found that the correspondence was weaker, and substantially so without the consideration of the Chicxulub impact in the data. This, the researchers say, suggests that asteroids contributed little to past extinction events aside from the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. And even then, because volcanoes were also highly active around 66 million years ago, spewing huge amounts of ash into the atmosphere all on their own, the dinosaur disappearance would have probably happened even without any asteroid involvement. End quote. Or, at least, lead author Theodore Green says, With the eruptions at the Deccan Traps, the stage was set, and the asteroid was the double whammy that thoroughly completed the job. Green also offers this not-at-all-reassuring analysis, quoting from Dartmouth, Flood basalt eruptions aren't common in the geological record, says Green. The last one of comparable scale happened about 16 million years ago in the Pacific Northwest. But there are other sources of emissions that pose a threat in the present day, the researchers say. While the total amount of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere in modern climate change is still very much smaller than the amount emitted by a large igneous province, thankfully, says co-author Brenhin Keller, we're emitting it very fast, which is reason to be concerned. Green says that this rate of carbon dioxide emissions places climate change in the framework of historical periods of environmental catastrophe. End quote. And it's worth noting that we are presently in the midst of the Holocene or Anthropocene extinction, sometimes referred to as the sixth mass extinction event. Now, there's debate over exactly when this ongoing extinction event began, but the current rate of extinction of bacteria, plant, animal, and fungi species is estimated to be a hundred to a thousand times higher than normal or background extinction rates. So... Fun. One thing that I and others have discussed a lot in recent years is the catch-22 of our heating planet, that as the years go on, more places will rely more heavily on air conditioning to keep cool or to merely survive, but all that air conditioning is also going to keep making the planet even hotter. The Conversation's weekly podcast recently dug into this conundrum, with a specific focus on how traditional architecture techniques designed for their specific climates got stamped out by a global trend of concrete, and what it'll take to bring those techniques back. The hosts spoke with Anthony Obukiri, a senior lecturer in construction management at Nottingham Trent University, who was born in Nigeria, and he shared with them what he calls duplitecture, the idea that you can look at skylines of cities around the world, and they all look 
roughly the same. They're packed with boxy concrete and glass buildings. And apart from being a bit of a bummer when it comes to cultural expression, it doesn't make a ton of sense when it comes to climate. Concrete absorbs a ton of the heat that hits it, and certain types of it or certain designs of it allow the heat to transfer from that surface to the other side. And then you've got the giant panes of glass that became popular throughout the 20th century, turning all of our buildings into what host Daniel Marino called basically greenhouses. So because of the glass and the concrete, they've got to be supported by air conditioners, especially in places like southeastern Nigeria, which Ubukiri calls basically as tropical as it gets. And the air conditioners all push the heat from the building outside. And if you walk past a big building, you can feel that. Host Jim Aware said, quote, Urban planners call these phenomena urban heat islands. That's when urban environments retain and emit excessive heat. Now, there's a bunch of factors that go into creating these heat islands, and concrete is one of them. So are air conditioners. A high density of urban development without any vegetation exacerbates the problem, too. End quote. And inside these hot, hot buildings, you've got people, men mostly, wearing multi-layer black suits that have become kind of the international standard style, another copied culture, according to Ubukiri, which is a legacy of colonialism. Vita Pivo, a postdoctoral scholar and assistant professor of architecture at the University of Michigan, says that concrete, which, by the way, according to some sources, is the second most consumed material on Earth after water and contributes to 8% of global CO2 emissions, more than the airline industry. Pivo said that concrete as a building material really ramped up in the 20th century at first as wealthy nations like the U.S. sought to make more permanent and lasting structures, as well as roads for the increasing number of cars. And then mid-century, it became part of the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, each wanting to show they had the material, the technology, and the resources to create more and more concrete infrastructure, and not just within their own borders, but spreading it all over the world. They would gift it to other nations as a marker of industrialization. Pivo gives the example of Vietnam as having received one of these concrete gifts. Quote, During the war, Americans portrayed themselves as kind of teachers, so they were global experts that disseminated knowledge. But by accepting this knowledge and this kind of concrete gift, the local country then agreed to participate in the maintenance of those technologies. So then the U.S. would come and maintain the cement plants with their own technology. So basically, the idea was that the U.S. created a market they could continue drawing from while disseminating their own tools of manufacture. So the U.S. was not making cement, but it was providing the technologies for other countries to make that material. And now, Vietnam is a top-five cement manufacturer in the world. It's a major commodity for them, so they developed a kind of dependency on concrete, end quote. Even though the concrete used all over Vietnam is not a great material for their climate. And concrete continues to be used all over the world because a ton of studies were funded on concrete over the decades, so when it comes time to designing something or planning safety regulations, the material with the most evidence and literature to pull from is concrete. Obakiri wonders how much organic development of traditional methods was lost during the decades and centuries of colonialism. 
Methods like insulating building materials that can keep buildings cool without using any electricity and other passive building design solutions like wind catchers. Susan Abed-Hassan, professor of architectural engineering at Al-Narain University, has tricked out her personal home with all kinds of passive building design solutions to keep it a good 10 degrees cooler than the outdoor temperature, even in the hottest months of the year in Baghdad. One cool technique is wind catchers, which are vents that are placed strategically in the right direction to get wind flow, sometimes appearing from the outside to look almost like chimneys on the top of your house. They can get a lot more complex. Abed Hassan told the hosts that she's working on versions that would channel the wind over cool materials like water or underground soil so that it cools the house even more. Also going underground, Obakuri told the hosts about a method inspired by an old theory of how termites keep their mounds cool. He explained, quote, When you dig down into the earth within three, four, five meters, you have a constant temperature, essentially. So they've created a mound that connects substructural levels and superstructural levels and created openings that help them to move temperatures and maintain temperatures within the range they want. Basically, if air gets very warm, it will rise and escape. When it comes to buildings, colder air is drawn in through the lower parts of the building and then gets drawn up through a vent system, a shaft area, so the warm air then gets expelled from the higher heights. They try to accelerate the movement of the air by design, and they created valves of different sizes which work as a team, opening and closing different valves at different times of day, at different levels, in order to achieve the temperature they want. End quote. There are a ton of cool methods out there, some brand new ideas and some based on very old traditions. Nobukuri in particular is fascinated by the traditional methods and wonders how some of those might have developed over the years had they not all been overtaken with the same concrete, glass, and air conditioning technique. And who knows what clever, potentially less environmentally harmful, and also more effective solutions might have been discovered. For now, we can hope that some of those old methods are rediscovered, reapplied, and adopted again as new ideas also continue to appear. The hardest battle will be getting places to adopt them en masse, but you know, at a certain point, when some solutions are more effective at keeping us cool and save money by using little to no electricity, it's gotta be a win-win, right? Well, here's a fun thing if you're into books. Literary Hub has just announced a new weekly advice column in which they will recommend books for you based on what's going on in your life. Not like self-help books to solve your problems, but more books that might be an emotional match for what you're going through. Columnist Dorothea explained it, quote, Every so often, life has a funny way of putting the right book into our hands at the right time. You'll read a passage and you'll feel like it was written for you specifically. You'll look around the subway car or the park lawn or the grocery line or wherever you are in disbelief. And you'll wonder how it's possible that someone you've never met has pinned your pain so precisely to the page. It's disconcerting, then it's comforting. Other people, or at least their characters, have sat where you're sitting. It makes you feel less alone. 
Yes, life has a funny way of doing that sometimes. For all the other times, you can now write in to me. You can tell me what's eating you in an email to deardorothea at lithub.com and I'll tell you what you should read next. The recommendations will vary, but I'm hopeful that no matter what's going on, in this column, you'll encounter a few words of sage wisdom to float on, another world to disappear into for a little while, or, at the very least, some sympathetic company. End quote. Sounds like a pretty cool service, so if you want to try it out, you can email Dorothea at deardorothea at lithub.com or just bookmark the link in the show notes to read along every Thursday. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.